thank you for joining me for another episode of Empower Apps. I'm your host, Leo Dan. Today, I'm joined by Azam. Azam, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'll let you go ahead and introduce yourself for those who don't know. Sure. My name is Azam, and I work as a coding bootcamp instructor for digital crafts at each web development, but I also do iOS development on the side. And I am very active on YouTube as well as Udemy for publishing different courses and also speaking engagements. Last was, I believe, 360 iDev in Denver. Yeah. Yep. Yep. That's last time I saw you in person. We'll have links to your YouTube channel somewhere here and in the show notes for just listening. So definitely check that out. We've been talking a lot on the show. We'll be talking later about SwiftUI architecture for large mm -hmm. apps later. But the other thing we talk about is the rumor mill of VR and all that stuff. And I was really impressed with your presentation at 360iDev. We'll hopefully have a link to that here as well, where you talked about RealityKit and actually using RealityKit. I was – so I'll just tell you I was surprised. I wouldn't say – was it super easy, but it seemed like it was a lot more simple than I thought it was going to be to get started. Is that kind of your impression when you mm -hmm. first got started learning how to use it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I started with AR Kit when it came out. I believe it was in 2017, and it felt very natural at that time because it was based on, I believe it was based on Matayo framework, which Apple bought or something similar framework, I think. That they bought, and it was similar to Sprite Kit and Scene Kit because that's what it was using underneath. And when Reality Kit came out, probably in 2019 with iOS 13, then it was a little bit different because the underlying system was the rendering system was different for Reality Kit. They were not using Scene Kit or Sprite Kit; they had their own engine. But mm -hmm. the examples and all the videos that were provided by WWDC like creating basic shapes and loading different models into the augmented reality world, I think they were they made it quite simple. So definitely simple stuff is very easy to do. But yeah, if you're doing like a very hard stuff, then all the math and calculus, they come into play. Okay, okay. That's what I was, that's what I was wondering about. Could you briefly explain the difference between the different frameworks? So I get like SpriteKit's 2D-based, I believe. Mm -hmm. But then yes. there's ARKit, SceneKit, and reality kit, and I don't know any other 3D-based ones, but what's the difference between all these? So AR kit, when it came out in 2017, they didn't really have their own rendering engine. They were using the rendering engine from SceneKit and SpriteKit. SceneKit is like a three-dimensional, if you want to create those kind of game, like orthogonal game like Zelda, and SpriteKit okay. is more of a two-dimensional games like Mario and Pac-Man kind of things. Okay. Uh, so they were using those things to render, and they were not really using any, I guess they were not using really using any hierarchy of trees and that kind of a structure to render things. Mm. They were just using SCM nodes and SpriteKit nodes to render all the stuff. And all the okay. stuff that ARKit was doing was based on what was provided by SceneKit and SpriteKit. So it was okay. just leveraging the power of that. But when Reality Kit came out in 2019, they had their own engine. They were, the top layer was still AR Kit, like the AR view and everything, the gestures, they were all there. But the underlying engine was very different with, I think they were using their own material stuff, the geometry, physics, collision detection, and all those stuff in Reality Kit. And also all the different elements that you're adding, they, I think Apple was automatically making them more metallic based. So they were lightning, lighting system, 
that was really nice in Reality Kit. What do you think is like the biggest hurdle you had to get over when you were learning Reality Kit? I think the biggest hurdle for me was mostly based on collisions. Collisions with different shapes and one thing can collide with other things can collide with this. But all of this was based on mostly about bit masking. Basically, you have to assign some sort of a bit mask to each of these shapes that can collide with something and they cannot collide with other stuff. I think that was okay. the only small hurdle. I wouldn't say it was a big hurdle because I faced the same issue in ARKit and it was the same thing. You have to do bit masking or category masking to do for that to work. But that was not really big. It was it was like a small hurdle, which, which was fine. But uh, overall, since I already had experience with ARKit and I made courses on ARKit and gave presentation and all that, wrote a book on ARKit, I think for me, it was a more of a smooth transition into reality. One of the things, and I don't know if this was with ARKit as well, but one of the things that I liked that I understood the convenience of what Reality Kit brought to the table was this idea of anchors where you can like say, I want this thing to anchor on the wall. And then that way the camera automatically picks that up and puts your object on the wall. Do you want to explain that a little bit? Where, yes, like yes. the history yeah, of that. In, yeah, in Reality Kit, if you want to add anything to the real world, you have to create an anchor. You can think of an anchor like a stationary, it doesn't have to be stationary, but an anchor is just a point in the real world where you will attach something virtual. And those anchors can be many different types. You can have a plane anchor, like a horizontal or vertical. So whenever a plane is detected, like you're looking at your ground or the carpet or a table, it will create an anchor for you. And then you can put something on or attach something to that anchor so that like you will have a glass or a coffee mug right on that anchor, which is placed on the table automatically. So that's one of the anchors. Reality Kit does provide you with face anchor. So something on your face, maybe a mask you're wearing, camera anchor, object anchor, image anchor, body anchor, and also world anchor which means you can just put anchor anywhere in the world one thing i started playing around with getting ready for this call was reality composer like that Mm. opened up a whole world for me i used to do is it 3d studio max and what was the other one my i used to do that stuff in college quite a bit so i'm a little bit familiar with 3d stuff but yeah reality composer definitely gave me a little bit of those vibes but it's definitely more geared towards reality kit especially when like you said you talk about anchors and stuff do you want to explain why someone would want to use reality composer yeah reality composer is a design time or design oriented virtual uh, like a graphical user tool or a graphical ui that allows you to create these experiences without writing many lines of code because you're just using drag and drop you're importing your own models or you're using existing models. You're putting their animations. Basically, you can do the anything you want. So let's say that you're building a augmented reality zoo with different animals. So you can just create the whole zoo in Reality Composer. And then you can import everything into your project, like a Reality Kit project, and code against it. So it allows you to create these experiences really quickly without having to for you to say, oh, the elephant, it will be on X is this and Y axis this. You just place it anywhere you want using Reality Composer and using a design time tool and it will, it will just appear like that. So it's really good for creating these AR experiences without having any knowledge of the underlying implementation. 
What's the, what do you get out of it? What's, what does it export to? I think it's a reality kit file. It, okay. It's the, yeah, it's a composer file. And then the good thing is that you can attach some events right inside your reality composer files and you can get listen or listen to those events in your code. And you can do the other direction also. So that's kind of cool that if you tap that's on awesome. something, so if you tap on something, then your code can handle that stuff. So that's kind of cool. Getting interface builder flashbacks. Yeah. You could set up IB actions and yeah. It's similar IB, to yeah, totally. Do you, what do you think is like missing out there when it comes to VR, AR apps? I think we are still waiting for Apple glasses or Apple goggles for at mm-hmm. least for the right. AR because some of these experiences might be okay on a phone if you have a measuring app or these kind of things, but it still creates that kind of, it, it's not seamless experience. You wear those glasses or goggles, whatever Apple is going to come out, and then you will be able to see instantly what's going on in the AR world. You can create right. some timers. Maybe you can have a virtual display and you don't really need big screens anymore. So right. everyone will be wearing glasses and looking at a 100-inch TV or something. Have you tried creating like your own productivity, like to do app using reality kit and just see if you can mount your to do list on the wall using your, with your <laughs> phone or anything like that? I did the measuring app and I did the graph, like creating like a chart, bar chart graph. Okay. And okay. that looked, uh, that looked really cool. Yeah. 3D. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think, yeah, I was going to ask you about the future, but you mm-hmm. answered that already. Do you, I don't want to go, I don't want to jump too far, but was, <laughs> This is probably a silly question, but I'm going to ask it anyway, since we're going to talk mm-hmm. about architecture later. Was Did you try anything complicated as far as architecture, like when it came to your reality kit stuff? And, oh, I want this to listen to this, and then I wanted to pull this information from a database or anything like that. For reality kit, I think for our kit course, I did try a lot of complicated things, like even persisting the location of the object. So you okay. can just persist the actual location, and you can... Uh, Close your app, kill your app, start again, and your furniture will be right there. And okay. Apple, Apple does provide that API. It's not, it's not as nice as I would like to be, but right. Firebase platform also provides a similar API, but that's like slow because it's in the cloud. Still, it's not perfect, but yeah, it's definitely. And then I made like those racing car games. So you're controlling a virtual car in augmented reality and you're just yeah. moving it up and down and all that stuff. So that was cool. Um, so yeah, let's talk about something else you've been working on recently. You've been doing, I don't know, research, I guess you could call it, into Swift UI architectures for large apps because those of us in the real world don't just build donut shops and smoothies. We need something a little bit more complicated. Um, what's been your first explain what you've been doing and then what's been mm-hmm. your biggest takeaway from what you've been looking at as far as Swift UI and architecture? Yes. So for the past, I would even say eight to 12 months for the past one year, or when Swift UI actually got announced in 2019, just like everyone else, I jumped on the MVVM bandwagon and I wrote books on it and articles and I started publishing a lot of stuff on it. And I was not really never happy with the end result because even for a very small app for four or five screens, I would create that eight or 10 different view models inside view models and something crazy. And it was just not working out. So I started to talk to other people who were having the same issues and they were talking about the same thing that this is not the right approach. 
And I already told them that I invested a lot of time into this. I wrote books on it. So I could create courses on it. So it's weird for me to go that route. But eventually, yeah, I, I looked at Apple samples, read some posts online, talked to a lot of people, a lot of much smarter people than me. And they like guided, look at like how things are in different worlds. If you see React, if you see Flutter, if you see any other reactive platform, they don't believe or they don't do this MVM stuff because their view itself has a capability of binding using state, binding, state object, environment object. So you don't really need that extra layer in most cases. So once I got into that, I looked into Apple's sample codes also, which is Fruta app and Food Truck app. And I started creating a lot, hundreds of prototypes. So over the course of maybe three years, I created more than like 150, 200 prototypes, different apps just to play around with. And once I start using just removing the view model layer and just talking model and the view directly, it started to make a little bit more sense. Now, just to be clear, I know a lot of people will be like, you're putting your logic in the view. No, that's not the MV pattern. That is a container pattern. So you, you're mistaken in that point. And container pattern, by the way, is very common and in React JS applications. So that's perfectly fine to use if you want to use that. So my research, and I wrote a really long article also about building these kind of large applications. One of the things of my research or the biggest takeaway is that don't fight with SwiftUI. Because if you're fighting with SwiftUI or if you're fighting with any framework, you're going to get into trouble and you're going to end up writing more and more code. So a lot of people I talked to, they were like, we're not going to use this fetch request property wrapper section fetch request. We're not going to use environment object. We're not going to use this and that. And they have to write 100 and 200 lines for every single thing that fetch request was already doing. And we had, I think, the presentation from NS Spain also. They did the same thing. They said we went to the our own route. We created our own architecture, but then we came back because Apple told us our app is like 100 times or 10 times more slower than the competition. So those were my biggest takeaways. And and I think another thing to note over here is that for you can't just mold your app with one single architecture, but you can you can design your app in a way that it works best with certain architectures. Like for client server application, I usually just use which I like to call MV pattern. I don't think that's the official name, but I use MV pattern. But for core data only application, I try to use active record pattern because it feels more natural to me, but it might not feel natural to other people. For simple apps, you can just use container pattern, which is no view models, no models, just write the code in the views and pass the data down to the child elements. So that is what my takeaways from my research is. And I'm pretty happy with the stuff that I'm doing now because it's much more streamlined, much more nicer. And here's another crazy thing that now I see a lot of people moving in similar direction. We have, I don't know if I should say names on it, but we have YouTube, YouTuber like Stuart Lynch, who's a YouTuber, very famous YouTuber. He's also moving into that direction. If you see his latest videos, he's moving into a direction of no view models, just talking to the right, talking to the data store. I think he calls it data store. But if you see his latest videos, he's also doing the same thing. Underscore David Smith, very famous podcaster and developer, also said similar things like don't try to fight the system, don't fight the framework. John Sundell also in his latest podcast said the similar things 
about not using too many view models. And then I think another YouTuber, Flow writes code or something. He's going with more of a view only, which is basically a container pattern. So everyone is realizing mm-hmm. uh, eventually that they might be writing a lot of code to achieve less. And that's why they're also researching into this. So like you have here a store model. So I just want to clarify a few things. So is the store model, is that your model or your view model? So people like to, yeah, some people can call it like a view model or something, but I just like to call it a model or aggregate model because if we are... But the point over here, and that's an important point, is I will not have a different view model for every screen. Because whenever people look at store model, they're like, oh, you just name your view model to store model. So that's it. That's what you did. No, that's not what you did. What we did or what I did is I completely removed 10 or 12 view models that you will create. And I just replaced it with something I call aggregate model. And that will be used by all the views. So that's a very important part of it. Okay. So that's, I don't know, because I think like I'm moving away from having a singleton environment model in my app. What I've found is going back to one of the biggest takeaways you had was the modularization part is I had a hard time breaking that apart when it has to do a lot of things in an app, but I'm not sure, like, I, I think what I'm saying is probably not what you're doing, but like, Sometimes you can have too much of a singleton, if you know what I mean, in an app when it tries to do too much stuff. Would you do like maybe multiple environment models within your app or Mm -hmm. how would you handle something like that? Oh, yeah. So in my latest article, which is for building modular application, like for large scale Swift UI, I started with one store model, but then eventually I talked about this is not going to work in large apps because what about a store can do shipping and handling and catalog and inventory, fulfillment, payments. Where are you going to put all yeah, that stuff? Okay. You can't put it in one file. So that is where your domain expert is going to help you out and break these things into multiple models, like a catalog model. A catalog model will be okay. giving you the products and the product line. And yeah, that's what know, I'm something, seeing here. Something about the product. But it for goes back to like domain, mm-hmm. domain-driven design domain is driven. where you have yeah. each model each view model, aggregate model, whatever you want to call it, broken yeah. up into each domain. And then, okay. Yeah. Well, how do you communicate between each of the models if you need to? So each of these models or aggregate model, they don't directly communicate with each other. But since they are using a service, let's say the client server application, some sort of a web service or client, they will just ask the client to get the data and they will get the data. Okay. Yeah. And if the oh. view needs catalog or if the view needs stuff from two different aggregate models then the view can use two different environment object or state objects whichever one it needs i'm just giving example for state environment object but it can be a state object also that's fine yeah yeah what i was going to ask that so it sounds like you use environment object just because a lot of convenience that comes with that because once you do it once in your app it's used throughout the app do you see any benefits of going with a state object in some cases mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Memory-wise or optimization-wise? So state object or even removing the state object, sometimes you can even use just a state, meaning like just the state, add state, which React actually does that, and we can also do that. So if you have a view, 
just one view and it's that view is saying i'm just going to list you all the inventory items and that's the only place where you are going to display that then just fetch it inside the task modifier using a call to whichever service and then put it in the state and you're done so that is perfect yeah, or for, you could just fetch yeah. it fetch it and toss it into another view as a let struct and then you don't even have to do a state or a var yeah, yeah that's a good point yeah so i think depends. like when we did we we did our episode with Aviel. I don't know if you saw his talk too, but one of the things is keeping things as simple and as minimal as possible that you need. If you're not going to write to it, there's no point in using mm. any property wrapper on it. And if it's only going to be used within your thing, and that's where you're getting yeah. at state object. State. Yeah. Yep. Oh, uh, okay. So here's the hard one. Um, I didn't see any combine. There was a lot of tasks, use of tasks in your app. Did you try combine? What was the shortcomings there? Was it just too complicated for what you need or what? Or do you see for you, it's like, oh, I just prefer using async and await with tasks and in some cases mm -hmm. combine my better fit. I think there were some cases where you can use combine, not in the examples that I've posted over there on the article, but I was using mainly async and await and inside the task modifier. That was perfectly fine. I think one of the re one of the ways or one of the places where I used combine was, I believe, when I was trying to access an event that was generated from my Swift UI application into my UI kit application. So that is okay. where I was using sync functionality of combine to hook, hook it up like some sort of an event. But uh, in daily programming or when I'm writing apps, I usually don't use combine unless it's necessary in those situations. Yeah. Okay. What I want to talk a bit about what's in your opinion is like the difference between a screen and a view. I wasn't totally clear mm -hmm. on that. Is it that you like, is a screen more of a composite of multiple views and a yes. view is just an individual object attached to a state. Is that kind of the idea? Yes. Yes. So screens are, in React terms, they call it like a container, I guess a container view. And views are just reusable views. So screens basically will be movies, lists, screens. Screen that okay. lists the movies. But inside that, you might have a movies view where you pass in an array of movies and the movies view display the movies. So if you mm -hmm. have a filter or something, that will go in the movies list screen and okay. then filter it okay. and then pass it down to the movies view. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's like I've done Vue.js and it's the same idea with like page and component yeah. is the same yeah. idea or page and it's view, whatever. Page and. Yeah, yeah. Where like it's just a collection of views. And like we've talked about, you want to keep your view as simple as possible. If you have more than, I don't know, what's a good number? Three property wrapper wrapped properties mm -hmm. in your Swift UI view, you probably need to split that up, mm -hmm. in my opinion. I think that's maybe a good code smell there. One thing I've been dabbling with is error handling. I think you have a pretty good um example in your thing where you use error wrapper. I've started playing around with using alerts. Alerts I think it's an iOS sixteen natively support a localized error, so it'll automatically display the error for you. Okay. I don't know if you've looked into that, but I really like what you did here with, with kind of just having an error view and then you have a shared error state. Is yeah. it a shared error state throughout the whole application? Yeah. So I usually just inject it as an environment object and in okay. the app file, which is like your starting point of your Swift UI, it is at that point I use a sheet or some sort of an overlay to display the error. So I have one place to display the error only. Yeah. 
And that displays it over the whole app universally as opposed to yes. having an error display in each of you. Okay. Yeah. yeah I really like that idea. That's really yeah. clever. I want to talk about something new from this year, and mm-hmm. that's navigation. Oh, yeah. Did you work on this before the updates to navigation or afterwards? On the article? I worked, yeah. yeah, I worked. This article, I think it focuses also on iOS 16 uh, navigation API. Yeah, 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 because I, yeah, I was really happy to see that in the article was all the navigation stack stuff. Did that change a lot or help a lot with what your research was showing you? No, I have been doing the same navigation like for iOS 16. That's as early as when it came out. So the, okay. in the article, I mentioned that I'm doing more of a global. You start with a small navigation. Okay. One enum with home log- login and register or something like that. But what about larger screens, the larger apps where you have a nested navigation? like a Mm -hmm. catalog home and catalog product and all that. So you just have to structure your enum in such a way that you can go from one navigation to the other. And I think in the article, I mentioned that how to do programmatic navigation. So you anywhere in your code, you can just add something to the navigation path and it will go there. And so do you have like just a, you have an enum in those larger apps where you have associated values for the catalog product item or a particular thing, or do you use a product like a protocol and then store that in an array? How I'm not familiar mm-hmm. with all the new stuff with navigation stack, so I'm really curious how um, you broke mm-hmm. that out. Yeah, I think in my article I have a, a base enum, like the parent enum, okay. uh, which contains some other enums. I don't think they need to contain other enums, but they contain. I think we have a routes. And that contains some other enums like catalog routes and inventory routes and all that stuff. So you will eventually have an array of routes. And since route is an enum, it which can contain other cases or other enums, then other cases like catalog and inventory, then you can manage to go to those places also. So in the end, I have an array of routes. And when I add a route to it, it goes over there. That's it. Okay. So basically it could be, you can navigate anywhere, like within your route, you could go from a catalog item to an inventory item to yeah. back yeah. to home. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. That's cool. I like that. And that, that's, that array is the navigation, literally the navigation stack or the nav in old yeah. parlance. Yes. yes. Navigation that's controllers, navigation. list of view controllers. Yeah. That's okay. a navigation stack. Yep. And that's stored as either a state object in the app or an environment object stored throughout the application. Yeah, I'm storing Uh, it as an environment object. But I think if you have a very large app and if that app has a catalog part and fulfillment and some other part, then you can inject it in that particular root of that view instead of the complete root of the whole app. So you can do that also, but for the sake of simplicity, I just injected it in the root of the whole app. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. What do you think, one thing I want to talk about, and I think something you you talk about, and I think it's really important, is testing. What do you think are some big things that people are missing when it comes to testing large Swift UI apps? I think one of the things that is available in Flutter and is available in React.js and it's not available in Swift UI is how to test the views without writing end-to-end tests. In Flutter, you can do widget testing. In React, you can do view testing. I think that's what they call it, React view testing. You can just mount the view and test it out. But we cannot really mount the view and 
test it out. So we have to write the whole end-to-end test to do those kind of tests. Now, one of the things I noticed, if you have logic in your view, like which is only for the view itself, you can quickly test those logic just by Xcode previews. So most of the time, you don't have to do something complicated to make it testable. You just write your logic, UI logic in the view if you want, sorting and filtering. You can do that over there, depending on the case. Sometimes you can do it in the model itself. But you can quickly test it out in the Xcode previews, and that also works in some situation. Now, if your filtering or sorting is very complicated because it's based on so many different options, probably it will be a good idea to move it into the model object and to write the test for it. Yeah, Yeah, just going back to talking about combined and stuff, that's where I've moved my testing is I test my Mm -hmm. combined to see in unit test, I'll test my combined there. But it's interesting to note like how Flutter and React test, test the views. I've never, Mm -hmm. I've never understood how that would be, but that would be really, I'd be really curious in in that perspective on how that works. Yeah. For, I think for React, I think they they just mount and they create a shallow copy of the view and then Mm. they can click a button or whatever they want. It's like a view inspector in the end, I guess. You can say that the view inspector tool, it's similar to what React and Flutter are doing, but it's official. Is it it anything like UI testing? No, it's it's basically, basically the view inspector tests are mostly like unit testing. So you are basically performing a unit test on the UI without launching the whole app and all that stuff. So it's much quicker, but I would, yeah, if I have to do a test, then I would, depending on what I'm writing, obviously you should unit test your models. And if you're using view models, unit test your view models. But if you want to unit test, if you want to test your UI, then the UI test is a much better choice because that is actually going to click a button, actual button and not simulate clicking a button. So that's definitely helpful. Yeah. Was there anything else you want to talk about when it comes to Swift UI architecture? I think that's, uh, yeah, I think we covered a lot. And use the best architecture. I think I'm just going to say it. Use the best architecture for your needs. When I was doing MV pattern and I tried to apply it to my core data applications, although it was working and I have a course out for reminders app that's using that, but it didn't feel right. It was just a feeling that, oh, core data, like an ORM. I know it's not an ORM, but maybe active record pattern would be a much better choice. So maybe I should do it that way. So it's all and about think, the feel. Yeah. I think too, like people are too stuck on, oh, this is the architecture. I'll use it throughout the app. That's not how mm. architectures work, especially on large apps. It's in this part, we'll use MV mm. or in this part, we'll use this. And in this part, we'll use this pattern. And you connect all those pieces together. And I think once you've understood that, I think it just, it becomes a lot easier. Yeah. And for me, it's like testing. Can you test it? If you can test mm. it, that's a pretty good, that's a pretty good start on an architecture pattern. Sure. We'll post a link to your article. Definitely check that out. A lot of great tips. Awesome. Was there anything else you want to talk about before we close out? I think that's pretty much it. Thanks again for having me. I had, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for coming on again. It's good to see you. Hopefully I'll see you in person soon. People can find links to your reality kit stuff and that article. Where else can people find you online? Yeah. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Azam Sharp, A-Z-A-M-S-H-A-R-P. And you can visit my website also. It's azamsharp.com. 
Thank you, Awesome, again. People can find me on Twitter at LeoGDion, at LeoGDion at C.IM on Mastodon, LeoGDion on LinkedIn. Bright Digits, the name of my company. Please, if you're watching this on YouTube, like and subscribe. I'd really appreciate it. And if you're listening to this on a podcast, post a great review. If there's something you want to come on and talk about or there's something you want me to talk about, let me know. Feel free to DM me. I hope you have a good rest of your day, and we will talk to you later. Bye, everyone. Thank you.